This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to Life with GDPR. In our first episode of 2024, we take a retrospective look back at the solar winds hack and what it might mean for the compliance professional. First, a message from the sponsor of the Compliance Podcast Network, Ethico. In the intricate world of ethics and compliance, each second is precious, and slow case closures are more than just delays, they're missed opportunities. Enter Ethico. Our solution revolutionizes case management, cutting case closure times in half, and turning every challenge into a chance for improvement. Imagine a workspace where efficiency and compliance coexist harmoniously. Don't just dream of faster resolutions, make it your reality. Visit ethico.com slash CPN today to book a demo and dive into our exclusive white paper by Tom Fox, 2023, the year in compliance. Empower your team with the tools they deserve. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Jonathan Armstrong for another episode of the award-winning Life with GDPR. Jonathan, welcome back. Thanks very much, Tom. Jonathan, I thought I might ask you to turn a little bit to the left today, cross the pond, to look at a U.S. case, but maybe ask you about some of the both GDPR implications and the implications for a chief information security officer. I know that is something you have been writing and thinking about a lot. So I, of course, refer to the Securities and Exchange Commission's civil action against SolarWinds and their current CISO, Tim Brown. I think I got that right. This filing has intrigued a lot of people, including myself and Matt Kelly. We've taken a bit of a deep dive into it. But from your perspective, what do you see in this that's interesting, different, or perhaps even head-scratching? Yeah, I think it is pretty significant. And obviously, it comes alongside some other actions that we've had against individuals. So cases like Carlos Abarca we've had over here in the UK and Joe Sullivan, of course, that we've talked about uh, before. And I think it just shows that the pressure is on when there are data breaches to disclose. And of course, that pressure isn't just on CISOs, although they're the obvious target for regulators, but also it could be on data protection officers, it could be on compliance officers. And I know many people say under GDPR, the data protection officer has immunity, but data protection officers don't have immunity from all things at all times. And so I think one of the lessons that we're probably going to get to at the end is the fact that if you're in a position of responsibility in a corporation, firstly, somebody might have a hit at you if you don't ensure the disclosure of stuff that ought to be disclosed. And secondly, you might want to have a look at your organization's DNO policy to make sure that if you're somebody who could be in the firing line, you've got adequate insurance protection in place to protect you. Now, there are a number of other lessons in SolarWinds. So to recap, this is a cybersecurity incident 
that wasn't disclosed specifically enough. There were generic disclosures, as most corporations make. We could have cybersecurity issues in common with other corporations. They might even say there is a rise in nation-state threat actors targeting corporations like us. We might make similar statements in the stock exchange filings. But here, the SEC's, one of the SEC's criticisms is that they uh, made a quote, only generic and hypothetical risk disclosures when they knew that some of those risks had crystallized. So they told the market generically what could happen. They didn't say what had happened. And that seems to be, I think, the nook, uh, the nub insofar as I read it. And I know you and Matt and a thousand other uh, attorneys in the US are better qualified to look at what the SEC are trying to do. But I think there's a whole trend of regulators trying to focus on individual liability because they know that with some corporations, fines are a cost of doing business and executives will take more chances with the corporation's money than with their own money, their own livelihoods, their own freedoms. Of course, the lasting message is do the right thing, be transparent, don't lie, and don't cover up lies. The GDPR perspective is obviously interesting because quite often in a data breach, you know that you've got an obligation to tell a regulator, and that usually is relatively clear cut. But when do you also need to tell your stock exchange if you're a listed entity? And that is often a more difficult decision, and it'll depend on things like materiality, etc. And I'm not a I'm a security lawyer, not a securities lawyer, and so I'm not going to advise people on what the Dutch corporate governance codes say and the UK governance codes say and what the listing requirements are in different jurisdictions. But I'll just highlight the fact that somebody needs to do that thinking and somebody has to be assigned in the data breach team to consider that. And that's particularly relevant if you're doing some sort of transaction. If you're engaged in an M&A transaction, if you're engaged in a fundraising then we've seen how regulators can focus on that. We've obviously had the uh, Marriott fine from the UK data protection regulator over failures in due diligence. And as a result, I think in M&A transactions, acquirers are more likely to ask very difficult questions about data breaches. And obviously, you've got to ensure that they have honest answers. So, there's a lot of issues, I think, around transparency. I think one of the other messages here is around audit reports and audit investigation reports. There's no point in doing an audit if you're not going to carry out the findings. And we've seen all sorts of cases in GDPR land as well that have told us the same thing. The Tucker's investigation, for example, where a law firm in the UK had a report as to its cyber fitness, if you like. It had tasks that it needed to do, and it didn't do them. Those vulnerabilities were exploited 
by threat actors and the regulator came down harder on them because they were aware of the issues and hadn't fixed them. Again, that's a feature of SolarWinds. As I understand it, there are emails flying around the system which showed that the picture internally wasn't as rosy as people might have perceived externally. So we've said it before on these podcasts, emails can be the perpetual witness to bad behavior. Don't put something in an email without thinking, I might have to read this one day uh, in court. And we need to act on vulnerabilities in our systems when we find out about them. You'll know better than me on this, but I think the potential for litigation is also significant as well. The SEC say that the stock price of SolarWinds dropped 25% in two days, 35% in a month. Obviously, there will be aggrieved shareholders somewhere thinking that the value of their stock dropped. There are potential whistleblowers. And just as an aside, obviously, the U.S. incentivizes whistleblowers to come forward. Other jurisdictions are looking at that as well. I think British Columbia and Canada just changed its rules recently. Whenever you're in an organization where there's bad behavior and there are emails flying around the system, if whistleblowers are incentivized to report the thing, they might. And so we can't have this sort of public-private posture with certainty because people in the organization might have different motives, different incentives, particularly when there are large dollar numbers involved. We, of course, know that regulators are interested in this. We, of course, know that there are all sorts of risks. And then one final thing I'd say is that if you're an individual, you've also got to watch your own remuneration. So quite often, executives like CISOs, like chief compliance officers sometimes, Part of their package will depend on share price. So if the share price goes up, you win. And that might be in options, it might be bonuses, whatever. I think regulators are always more likely to act when the individual stood to gain. If you've got options and you're profiting from stuff not being market knowledge, if you've got bonuses and you're profiting from things not being market knowledge, but the, then I think you're always going to be more vulnerable. So as well as looking at things like DNO insurance, individuals have also got to look at their own remuneration packages as well. Jonathan, let me pick up on a few of the points you raised. First of all, uh, I think my wife and I will be going to GDPR land. At least, Oh, good. <laughs> wherever you're that welcome. may be, hypothetical, theoretical, or other. <laughs> you mentioned Joe Sullivan and... From my reading, Joe Sullivan got into trouble because he did not tell the truth. Now, it was the legal claims brought against him and the criminal conviction used different language, but for me, it was that simple. What I saw in the Solar Winds 
particularly with Tim Brown, was perhaps not outright fabrication, but a shading which was not transparent and was not the full truth. CCOs have generally gotten into trouble in three general areas. Number one, they were a part of any scheme. Now, that, of course, comes out of the corruption world, but I'm going to port it over to the CISO world. They're Mm -hmm. a part of the problem. Number two, if they are grossly negligent in their action, not that they made a wrong decision. No one's been penalized for making a wrong decision. But if you have no resources or you don't have training, you don't have the ability, or you completely ignore something. And the third part is when you lie to regulators. Whether that regulator is the Security Exchange Commission, whether that regulator might be the ICO, if you misrepresent affirmatively to regulators, you're going to get in trouble. And that's where what one component of what I saw the claims against Tim Brown around. You mentioned the emails, and here, this, in my mind, was a little bit different than the stupid emails with quotes that we're going to give 15 cookies to our friend in China as a, quote, gift, end quote, that Uh we've talked about in other podcasts. What I saw in the emails cited by the Securities and Exchange Commission was absolutely routine communications from lower-level technical experts who said something along the lines of, Houston, we have a problem, and we need to fix this problem. And that's the type of communication I think senior people not only want but need. Yeah. If you don't know it's broken, you can't fix it, whether that comes through an audit or whether that just comes through from uh, a junior IT specialist saying, I see a vulnerability here. Uh, can we do something about that? So the email traffic quoted seemed to me to be of a different quality than the stupid emails we've laughed about in other podcasts. I yeah. thought it was almost routine communications. And I don't think you you even want to stop those sort of routine communications forward. But your point that the documents in the form of the emails will tell the story of whether the oral statements made by the head, whether that's a CISO or a CCO, are true and correct, uh, that's what's going to bear it out. It seemed to me that Tim Brown also was at least on a, on notice or should have been on notice that there were vulnerabilities in the system that were not disclosed and that after those vulnerabilities were exploited, as you noted, they shaded uh, the statements made to the public on this. So uh, I'm generally not offended when whatever the head of the Business corporate discipline, rather, once again, whether a chief compliance officer or a chief information security officer faces scrutiny, uh, even legal scrutiny, when they have made misrepresentations, and I won't hold you to the material standard, but, and they had or should have had actual knowledge of the vulnerabilities. Yeah, I I think they're they're all great points. And of course, I believe I'm statistically correct in saying that most attacks of this type rely on commonly known exploits. There's a piece of work I've seen from Risk Crew, for example, in the UK, looking at, I forget the number, 26 CVEs they're known in the trade. So a common vulnerability exploits, known exploits that haven't been patched and have led to the 
preponderance of things like ransomware attacks. So there's a relatively, there's a, a lot of knowledge around common vulnerabilities and oftentimes businesses don't fix that stuff as quickly as they can. So obviously there are vulnerabilities there. But to your second limb, I think that what's interesting about the uh, Barker case, which is a case from a financial regulator in the UK, not a, not, not a GDPR case per se, is, and, and we've seen that in other cases, the regulator says ah, the test isn't what the man in the street understood from these emails. The test is what a specialist CISO understood and, and, and should have done about it. And in a bark, what's really interesting is the regulator goes and looks at the guy's LinkedIn profile and says, not only were you an experienced guy in this field, but you said you're expert in the following things. So we're going to judge you by the standards that you told the world you had. And that is, I think, where people might find themselves tripping up. You and I probably both know people who've amended their LinkedIn resumes, for example, recently to say, oh, and I'm an expert in AI. If the AI dog comes and bites you, then you're not going to be able to say, oh, when I said I'm an expert in AI, I didn't really mean it. You're going to be judged by those higher standards. So I think that's another task that some individuals will want to do as a response to look critically at their LinkedIn biogs, public statements they've made about their skills and be more realistic about those. But I agree with you that it isn't as bad a case of some we've seen before. And I know you've read them more thoroughly than I have, but some of the emails are, I think, entirely routine. Some of them, it seems to me, were pleas for resources that other executives in the corporation presumably refused. From my point of view at a distance, it's interesting why so far we've only seen one executive in the corporation in the frame. Certainly when I've been involved in data breaches, I can think of one off the top of my head where initially the management team effectively blames the head of IT saying, why didn't we do this? Why didn't we do that? Why didn't we do the other? And the head of IT then produced his budget pitch from the last three years and said, here is where I told you about the vulnerability three years ago. Here's where I told you two years ago. Here's where I told you one year ago. In each of those three years, I costed out the fix, which was here. And in each of those three years, I presented it to you as a leadership team. And in each of those three years, you told me times were tough. Take that line item out of my budget. It wasn't going to happen this year. So sometimes the story is different from what it first seems here. And it might be that if this case progresses, we're going to have Mr. Brown produce a memo like that saying we knew of the problems, we wanted to fix them, but the cash was never made available for me to do. I think that's a great point. 
Jonathan, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. I, I think I am safe in making one last observation. We will be revisiting this matter on a later podcast. Absolutely. Thank you, Tom. Compliance Podcast Network is sponsored this month by Ethico. Ethico is a leader for compliance champions like yourself with its ethics and compliance optimization system built to turn goals and guidelines into real ROI for your program. For more information and a special white paper, go to ethico.com slash CPN. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. The award-winning Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.